welcome to our next episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. Today's episode is specifically for providers. Uh, so, for example, therapists, medical directors, supervisors, and medical settings. And we're going to center on recommendations on how to manage legal and ethical concerns after a suicide loss. My name is Sarah Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Monarch, and I'll be your host for today's episode. To help us break down our topic today, I'm joined by Skip Simpson and Dr. Vanessa McGann. Thanks so much, Skip and Vanessa, for joining us today. Let's begin by having you both provide a brief introduction of yourselves, and Skip, we'll start with you. Okay, thank you. So I am a plaintiff's counsel, and uh, and all I do are suicide cases, and I review about 80 of those a year and end up taking about five or six cases. And uh, I'm on the board of directors for the American Association of Suicidology and do a lot of talks, uh, grand rounds and things like that with uh, clinicians on trying to um, uh, make people aware of the malpractice snare and how to stay out of that snare and how to make things better for uh, all of us and our patients. And I'm Vanessa McGann. I'm a clinical psychologist in New York City. I have a private practice I work at a college counseling center, and I also am on the board of the American Association for Suicidology. I'm head of the loss division, and I co-chair a task force along with Nina Guten for clinician survivors, meaning clinicians who have lost somebody to suicide. So I'm in contact pretty often with clinicians who have newly lost a client and have a lot of questions and fears about next steps and what they need to do and how to navigate both the sort of personal emotional impact, but also the legal uh, and ethical implications of the law. Great. Well, so wonderful to have the two of you today. I'm so excited for our listeners in that we have experience on both sort of that legal, kind of medical legal side, as well as the clinician side. So I think it's going to make for a great podcast. But let's jump right in. Um, Just thinking about first, uh, Vanessa, I'm going to turn it over to you to help just lay the foundation of the types of legal and ethical considerations um, that come up after a provider loses a patient to suicide. What I like to usually do when I'm talking about this is break it into a few things because even before the loss, there are some legal things that you can do to sort of ensure that you'll have an easier time if you end up losing a client to suicide. And that would be First, getting training on clinical work with suicidal people. I feel like we we are woefully unprepared in our training institutions on on how to do a good uh, suicide assessment and and care for a suicidal individual. And then take good notes on that. Um, Skip will probably talk a little bit more uh, about you know the the importance of having a good chart. The other thing I would say is to See if possible to talk with the family um, beforehand that you're concerned that, that the person you're working with might die by suicide because then I think the family would be much less in shock and sort of you know angry and confused about about the outcome um, but the legal and ethical Repercussions afterwards mostly have to do with meeting with the family, um, whether to meet with them, whether to go to a funeral, whether to talk to them, 
um, if you do talk to them, how much to disclose, whether you, you know, in terms of confidentiality, you have the ability to talk to them um, and what sorts of things would be helpful for them. Um, I think the ethical part of that comes in because even if legally you feel comfortable that you're able to meet with them, sometimes it might not be the, the client's wishes that you have much contact with them. And sometimes there might be things that you know that the client told you that ethically you just feel like you don't want to share. Um, I guess I would also add, in terms of postvention, sometimes the family doesn't really want people to know that um, their loved one died by suicide. So then you get into the situation if you're in a community and there's a school that's talking about the loss, whether or not you're able to state that it's a suicide or whether or not you're really able to talk to the community about suicide and what to do in the aftermath. Oh, that's fantastic, Vanessa. Thank you for providing a nice kind of framework here to set us up where I think we can start with some discussion of what to do prior to a death ever occurring. So that kind of pre-preparation piece. And then mm -hmm. we can later transition into this idea of um, what are some recommendations, considerations, thinking about confidentiality and privilege and those pieces that relate to family members and others in the community. Uh, but Skip, I'll kind of turn it back over to you as Vanessa had started to kind of lay the groundwork there of um, things that a clinician or a provider can do um, prior to a suicide ever occurring. And so Vanessa had talked a little bit there about training and taking good notes, but um, would you like to tell us a little bit more from your perspective of what's important and what's to think, what uh, someone should be thinking about? When I was thinking about this particular podcast and thinking about postvention, uh, I told my paralegal, I said, that's all I do is with postvention is usually. And what happens is when I have uh, people who are seeking attorney, they'll call me. And of course they are in a real bad way. And, um, and I always think of, uh, a phrase of compassion over caution, and uh, even when I'm when I'm talking to, to survivors, uh, and then I start thinking about well, what about beforehand? How do these how do clinicians keep themselves out of trouble <clears throat> to begin with? And uh, and what I usually say is that nothing will. Stop a lawyer in his tracks quicker than good documentation, and and it's sort of an over it's sort of a seamless way that I look at things, and by that I mean when you're first sitting down with your clients and you're dealing with them, and you recognize that there are suicide risk factors, and you know that there's a potential out there for someone dying from suicide. One of the things that I would suggest is to the extent that you can is get the entire family involved uh, with the care of that patient as soon as you can. And I know there's going to be circumstances where part of the problem is some family member, but to the extent that you can, what you want to do is get the family members involved from the very beginning. And so if there is a bad outcome, the family members already know you. They already know how concerned you are for their their loved one. 
and also getting those people involved uh, and waiving confidentiality is getting your client or patient to waive confidentiality right off the bat. So that's not ever an issue. And then you can, you, you know, you'll be able to, to talk to the mother or the father or the spouse, and it, they're all a part of the treatment team. And so then, and of course, making sure that you, in your chart, you put down the formulation of your risk. You know, it. everyone knows the risk factors, so that's not going to be the biggest deal. It's how did you come to the determination about risk? And then that formulation of risk tells you what interventions you need to take in order to protect that person from suicide. And uh, and then in the event that there is a suicide afterwards, uh, in dealing with the family members, it's this the issue of compassion over caution. Really, that's when that really kicks in, and it kicks on hard. And so one of the things that I would suggest is that you sit there as the clinician and try to think of the person that you know of that is the most compassionate, loving, caring person that you've ever known, and you try to emulate what they are, who they are. And when you're talking to the family, just try to use that paradigm of of dealing with the family members. And you're also dealing with yourself, and I understand that. Uh, but I... You know, I would be concerned about getting too legalistic or too formalistic or too anyistic anything, because what happens is that then the family member will become suspicious of what are what is it that you're hiding, what's going on. Now, if you've been dealing with these family members from the very beginning while you're treating the patient, then that's going to be that transition to after a suicide or a suicide attempt is going to be a lot easier. And they recognize that they were a part of the team. They know what's going on. And uh, and so you would also want to be careful um, when you are a part of an agency like a hospital or whatever, a community center or whatever else there is, sometimes when you're talking to those folks who haven't been dialed in and they don't really know what the dynamics are particularly, sometimes they'll end up, or lawyers um, or insurance companies, will end up giving you what I think is bad advice because they're being very, very, very cautious and their head hasn't been in this game as much. And when their head's not in the game and they're starting to be cautious and they don't know all the dynamics, they may sometimes start giving you advice that causes you not to be human. And when you're not human and you're not compassionate and you're not caring, that's that's fodder for the beginning of someone deciding they want to sue someone. And what I would say in that regard is that Obviously, litigation is not good for the um, therapist, and it's not good for the family, the family of the of the loved one who's died, because litigation is not easy on families at all. And I try to tell everyone in the beginning when I get called that 
litigation is hard. It can be very hard on you. And so litigation is something that everyone wants to try to avoid, but they want to try to avoid it for the right reason. And what I mean by that for the clinician is not, you know, if you've got your mind on thinking of others and caring for others and you're doing your documentation and you're, you know, you're working your tail off trying to be as competent as you can, then, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that you want to, that you want to keep in overall mind. Um, and I realize I've been talking a little bit too long now, so I'll just stop here. <laughs> no, I think that's so helpful, Skip, and I just wanted to loop back to one piece that you had talked about in terms of how it can be really influential to include the family member up front when working with an individual that may be at risk for suicide. We know that that type of collaboration of care can actually be effective in mitigating both acute and chronic risk, so it's just a good therapeutic move. Um, and I just want to acknowledge, it, as you spoke to as well, that there may be factors or circumstances in which that's not indicated or consistent with um, what the, the client or the patient wants as part of their treatment choice. And, and just looping back to another piece that you had said there about documentation, just making sure that as a provider, as a therapist, you're documenting that you had offered this as a choice, as an opportunity uh, to include the family, but the kind of rationale and reasons behind why that wasn't pursued um, can be Good incredibly point. helpful for those cases in which um, the patient or their client declines that. Um, Vanessa, I wanted to turn it over to you and just see if you had thoughts, anything that you wanted to comment there on what Skip had already kind of started getting us going on. Yeah, just to respond to a couple of pearls of wisdom that he gave. Um, you know, I think when Skip's looking on whether or not to take a case, he's looking to see if if myself as a therapist met the standard of care. And I think that's really helpful for, for clinicians to know because he's not looking to see that we failed at preventing the suicide. He's looking to see whether we assessed where they were at, whether given that knowledge of our assessment, we decided on a treatment plan that met the risk level. So if you've really done a thorough assessment and, you know, you're not sure whether to, you know, hospitalize somebody, but you look through your assessment and you come up with a plan that makes sense to you, also, it's always a good idea to have a consultation with someone so it makes sense to somebody else, too. And you document that, and then somebody leaves your office and takes their life. You have met the standard of care because you've done a thorough assessment and based on that assessment made the judgment. Um, so I just wanted to sort of articulate that a little bit further. And in a way, it's a nice feedback loop because you've done the thorough assessment You've written the note. The, wrote, the note convinces you that you've made a sound decision um, based on all the information, and hopefully, you know, that decision will pan out to be a good decision. The other thing that I would just say, though, that in response to Skip, is that if your malpractice insurance says that you cannot meet with a family, even though Skip and I absolutely believe it's best practice to meet with the family afterwards and to be compassionate, you know, rather than cautious, you need to listen to your malpractice insurance um, because they can say that, that you did something against their policy and they can drop you from the policy. 
So I just wanted to give that little caveat. But definitely our our culture is so litigious. No offense, Skip. There's too many lawyers out there. And it's scary. But but the more you feel scared of the family and scared that they're going to sue you, the more they're going to think, what's going on here? And get more upset. The more you can just go in there with your heart and talk to them, the more they'll they'll really be supported by you in terms of your care for their loved one. Yeah, I agree with all of what uh, Vanessa just said. Um, in terms of the competency area, one of the, if not the best book that I've come across uh, on on how to do the assessments and the things to think about is the uh, Practical Art of Suicide Assessment, a guide for mental health professionals and substance abuse counselors by Sean Shea. And probably a number of you have been to his uh, workshops at AAS, but he's very good. And, uh, um, and so I would really recommend that. And in terms of the insurance company, uh, I agree that a lot of those insurance contracts cause you to um, need to contact them and let them know what has happened, and uh, then they're going to have a protocol that they talk to you about, and you need to abide by their protocol as much as you can so that you make sure that you're keeping your insurance, Uh, but also just talk with whoever it is you're talking to and suggest this is what you have in mind uh, in terms of talking with the family. And and uh, a lot of these people are, are savvy, and uh, sometimes the people who may not be as savvy are your defense lawyers um, just because they haven't been at it as long. So they may be someone that's only two or three years out of law school and they haven't thought through all these notions like they need to and sometimes they may be giving you something uh, or telling you something that doesn't just exactly feel right then it would be good to call maybe back your insurance adjuster and talk to them and and, uh, and kind of get a combination of of what they're saying and what, you, what the advice would be so that that's a good point on the insurance. Thank you, Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one other piece I just wanted to add to there of this idea of preparing beforehand, too, of making sure that you're engaging in the standard of care and using consultation as part of that. And, Vanessa, I think really smart how you acknowledge the role of documentation to be a big part of that because at the end of the day, if we don't document those efforts, there isn't sort of proof or um, kind of data to show that. And I think uh, another thing that's important to just highlight here is that definitely tricky work thinking about um, therapeutically interacting with individuals that are at high acute and high chronic risk for suicide. And another thing for our listeners to consider is making sure that your documentation is showing sort of the cost-benefit analysis of all the choices that you're making. So just being really thorough and and thoughtful about um, documenting why you're doing things, but also documenting the other things that you thought about and why you didn't necessarily take that approach can be really robust from a medical legal side. 
I, can, I think one thing that often comes up when I'm working with providers and consulting with them about what to do after a death occurs is um, sometimes confusion about how, what is confidentiality, what is confidentiality after death, how does that line up with privilege. And so, Skip, I was wondering if you could help our listeners kind of understand that piece of what does confidentiality mean after a death occurs and how does privilege play a role in that? Well, the... Um the confidentiality privilege continues to reside with the adult deceased until uh, an adult legal representative of the state has been established. And so you keep matters confidential. But that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about on confidentiality is that if you can get people to your client and to waive confidentiality in the beginning and that there are certain people that you're allowed to talk to and and try to get your patient client to identify those people that they feel comfortable in, in letting you talk to and getting them a part of that team, then you don't have that roadblock anymore. So one of the things in my mind that causes uh, deaths is and causes a lot of problems and causes people to end up getting sued is is HIPAA and not understanding confidentiality. So everyone takes the position, I can't talk to you, I just can't because of HIPAA, I can't talk to you because of confidentiality, and you say it in such a way that it just completely annoys the family members. You know, and it's... I, you, I have... When I'm talking to people that call me and talk to me about this, they'll say, you know, that person was just such a a jerk. You know, when I was trying to talk to them, they shut everything down. The hospital wouldn't give me records. They wouldn't do this. They started making me jump through hoops and doing everything else. And there's got to be something to all this, and there is a reason why they're trying to hide the ball. So what I try to do is unwind that for them on why it is that they jumped the way they have. And um, people, you know, I think I think people would be shocked if they understood what lawyers do sometimes to try to make people understand why they are where they are. The last thing a lawyer wants is a angry, uh, vengeful client that is trying to to just get even and bring out all their anger and everything else on a therapist or a hospital. That's not what you want. What you want is someone, first of all, that there has been a duty that has, so you, there's four elements of a malpractice case. There's a duty, a breach of duty, proximate cause, and then damages. And if any one of those four elements are missing, then there is no lawsuit. So there could be something that you really did that was wrong, uh, but if it didn't cause damage, then it, there's no lawsuit. And so one of the things, I review 80 cases, but maybe only take five or six, there's a lot of reasons why I decline a case. Um, and. And Vanessa's right. When we're looking at cases on which ones are we going to accept, if I, if I see that there's someone 
was really at high risk and the proper intervention wasn't taken and then a death ensued. Uh, that's an issue I look at. I also then look at the, you know, do I see any heart, H-E-A-R-T, in the records? In other words, does it look like this hospital or this psychiatrist or this social worker was really trying to do what their very best? It also helps when I'm reviewing a case, if I do some research on who the clinician is and everything else, is that I know because for example, they're a member of AAS, uh, and they have been going to schools, have been trying to do the right thing. All those things count. Uh, so it's really important to, when I take the deposition of people, and I ask them if they've ever heard of uh, the American Association of Suicidology, Suicidology, or if they've heard of any of these other really great groups, and they say no, they never have, and I ask them if they've ever read a book on suicide, uh, and they say they haven't, and if they don't know any of the leader, leading people in suicidology, uh, and they just seem like this is just something they decided to do this day, was take care of this patient, and they didn't know anything about suicide, then I'm having a real problem with this situation. On the other side, if they're if they're really active in everything and they're trying to do the right job and they have been trying to do that for a long time, and by a long time, I mean even two months, then I feel a lot better about the case and being able to explain to the to the uh, survivor why it is that we're not, I'm not going to accept that case and trying to keep them from ever filing a lawsuit um, because I know how bad it is for the person who is filing the lawsuit and I know how bad it is for the people who are being sued. But primarily in my mind, it, right then, I'm thinking about the person making a decision on whether they want to follow, file a lawsuit or not. Because it's, it's, up, it's uphill. It's bad. And there's continuing damages that come from uh, a lawsuit. Anyway, I'm talking again too much, but I'm a lawyer. I get an excuse. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say another piece on the, the confidentiality. I, I think Skip's right that HIPAA makes everybody so scared and so rigid. Um, and I think this is where the ethical versus the legal sometimes comes in because if you have a client, <clears throat> excuse me, die by suicide and you know pretty much that eventually the, um, you know, the, the rights are going to be transferred to the parents, and the parent wants to talk to you, you don't necessarily have to say, I can't talk to you until you have this piece of paper, you know, from the court signed and, and everything. You can talk to that parent and be compassionate. Um, Eric Harris, who's a lawyer from the American Psychological Association, always says that he, he'd rather defend a breach of confidentiality rather than negligence. So if, exactly. if you feel like it will be helpful and you don't feel like there's an angry family member who's going to sue you for saying something about their loved one, go ahead and talk to the family. Um, and don't wait for all of the sort of legal pieces of paper, ducks in a row, to be there. I mean, I hope I can say that, Skip. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, you're exactly okay. right. Because remember, that if you're doing it right, they're a part of the treatment team. We were all working together, and this happened. And if you've got everything documented ahead of time and you've got 
and you're doing all the stuff that we're talking about right now, the likelihood of a lawsuit coming is going to be rare. It's and then if it does come, then you're going to have a good way to defend on everything because of your charting um, and because of of following the standard of care and being competent charting and doing everything you can and not scaring people with you know a bad tone of can't talk to you because of tip you know if you do all that stuff the likelihood of you getting sued is is very remote yeah i think thank you both for that element and this decision that comes up about confidentiality and privilege after death. And I think it's another example of where to utilize that compassion over caution. And, and we know a, a huge part of the suicide postvention practice, as well as just the, the mission of mental health work in terms of taking care of others, um, that again, using this guiding principle of um, a huge thing that we need to do is also think about how can we take care of survivors and, and help them. And I think that's another example of where, like, just getting benched up on the confidentiality piece instead of thinking about the compassionate piece and how we can be there to support other people um, is just a critical element of the process. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, and I think about meeting with a family, I think about three elements. One is sort of just psychoeducation in general about suicide and, like, what Skip is saying, the causes of suicide why it happens. The other is just about grief and what the family may go through. Um, and then the third might be particulars about the, the client and things that you might think of as quote-unquote breaking confidentiality. But um, if the person you're talking to is the holder of the estate, is the person you know, with the privilege, then you can really tell them anything you want and it's up to your clinical judgment what would be healing or helpful for them to know. Yeah, I think it's also good to, you know, have at your fingertips uh good resources uh you know you know like some of Carla Fine's work and other people's work that uh can really that are dedicated to what do you you know you know, when you have a loss of a mom or a dad. Yeah, exactly, how to heal and what to say and when to say it and all those kinds of things. Those books are very helpful, and they're always there. Uh, you know, you you know, once that meeting with you, with the therapist and the family is done, uh, if they have resources, then they'll have something that they can look at, and they'll know also that this is objective. This is coming from someone who doesn't have a dog in the fight. This is someone that um, on the healing piece, that'll be very helpful to them, I think. I know. Mm -hmm. Well, I was curious about, from both of your perspectives, we've talked quite a bit about the preparation and then this other element of talking to the family, this piece of after a loss occurs, um, and knowing that our kind of podcast is kind of coming to an end here. 
it's always helpful for our listeners to kind of consider recommendations. And so one thing we will do is include some resources that are tied to this podcast. And both of you have alluded to some resources throughout the podcast. But I'm wondering if that might be a nice place to kind of pull things together in terms of uh, best practices, recommendations, kind of next steps for those listeners um, that want to know kind of what to do next if they want to really increase this aspect of their practice. Yeah, I think Vanessa would, I mean, I know some of the books, but I know Vanessa would probably know them better. Um, And I would be glad to supplement this after the podcast uh, if I can. Uh, And Vanessa also, she'll be able to do it better than me. By far, <laughs> but let's do a collaborative but, uh, effort. The two of you together, <laughs> quite a team. Yeah, I mean, sure. I, the the book that uh, Skip mentioned by Sean Shea, "The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment," I always say it's probably the most practical book you can get, and it is, you know, exceedingly helpful on how to um, conduct an assessment and create a formulation, and then also document it. Um, so that's great in terms of the the pre-vention piece. And then there's a a book edited by uh, Jack Jordan, John Jordan, and uh, John McIntosh called Grief After Suicide, where there's a few chapters about meeting with a family and uh, legal issues after suicide for a a professional caregiver. Um, So those would be very helpful. And then in terms of survivors, there's... um, you know, AAS has a list of support groups. AFSP has a list of support groups. Carla Fine's um, book, No Time to Say Goodbye. She has one with Mike Myers um, called, I think, Ooh, In the Wake of Suicide. Um, Iris Bolton has a beautiful book with a DVD companion. So there are a lot of resources out there. If you go to the suicidology.org website, we list a lot of them in the survivor section. Yeah, I knew you'd know what to say, Vanessa. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll be sure to have that resource list and um, to help people be able to kind of learn a bit more. And I also wanted to plug, of course, that this is just a really deep dive into one aspect of a suicide postvention practice. And just to let listeners know that we have this whole series of podcasts um, to think about being really inclusive and in how um, you're taking care of yourself and for family members who are wanting to kind of learn or understand more, we have additional podcasts on that piece of, of what it means to be a lost survivor. So just wanted to point to that as well, that this is a really kind of special topic, advanced consideration within a much larger kind of sphere and context when we think about suicide postvention. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a clinician, take your time and listen to the podcasts about the impact on families, you'll learn a lot and you'll also learn a lot about how to be compassionate and, you know, explore stuff with the family, you know, if unfortunately you lose someone to suicide. Yeah, Yeah, those short takes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, and I was just going to plug too that, you know, we have podcasts specifically about what it means to be a provider that's a, a lost survivor as well. And so just, giving yourself the permission to really understand all facets of the loss, both for yourself personally and professionally, and then, of course, for those family members and friends who are also impacted by the loss. I was looking at the short takes for suicide prevention, that podcast that you uh, have been providing, 
and uh, it's just an excellent outline uh, for different kind of medical settings, private practices, military settings, schools, um, uh, community and workplaces. Uh, and I, I don't know if crisis centers have been uh, talked about, but um, crisis centers is a really important aspect of suicide prevention. And they have a lot of the same kinds of issues that the other groups do too. So, Yeah, that's great. I think thanks so much, Skip, for highlighting that too, that with this series we're really trying to kind of have a bunch of different topics, um, allowing us to have kind of nice depth and breath. Um, well, as we kind of wrap up today, I always like our experts to be able to have kind of one last chance to potentially summarize a major point or perhaps kind of leave our listeners with final thoughts. Um, Skip, I'll turn it over to you first. Anything that you'd like to kind of say to close out the podcast? Well, you know, the summary that I would have is uh, compassion over caution. And act like a human. Be a good human. Think of that person you think of as a good human and try to emulate that person. And uh, in the, on the front part is to be competent, understand suicidology under you know really deep dig deep into that area uh, and good documentation and then afterwards uh, we've you know uh, then the compassion over caution just hits it hard yeah I would just say that uh, in summary it, it it is such a scary topic it's it's scary uh, on a you know, human level, the idea of losing someone to suicide, and then it's scary in terms of the legal implications of what might happen if you're working with someone and they die by suicide. But the more knowledge that you gain, the more the more of this podcast you listen to, the more you read about, the more you're going to be prepared for that situation, and um, the the easier everything will be. Great. Well, thank you both again so much for lending your expertise in a nice kind of teamwork fashion here to help us understand the legal and clinical aspects to consider um, after a suicide loss and in many ways what to do beforehand to help prepare and and help kind of provide a bit more of that confidence and comfort that can come in an area of practice that is just really challenging and really tough. So thank you both so much uh, for joining us for today's podcast. Thank Thank you. you. This podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out our other episodes in this suicide postvention series.